Women's Health Melbourne is a boutique specialist fertility and women's health practice, caring for women at all life stages. We're proud to provide world-class holistic medical care, including IVF and a range of other fertility treatments. We provide our patients with every opportunity to achieve their goals. Our two Melbourne locations are in Fitzroy and our new state-of-the-art Caulfield practice. Reach us at womenshealthmelbourne.com.au and you can follow both Women's Health Melbourne and Dr Radia Lou on the socials. Welcome to Knocked Up, a podcast about fertility, pregnancy and women's health. I'm your host, Geordie Morrison, and I'm joined as always by Dr. Raylia Liu, CREI Fertility Specialist, Gynecologist, and Director of Women's Health Melbourne. If you're enjoying the show, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Many people are affected by infertility. If you know someone who might benefit from listening to Knocked Up, please send them a link. This is our passion project. We do it to support and empower women with evidence-based information, to cut through the noise of Google and advice others might give. Well-meaning, but not necessarily up-to-date. Email your questions, which we keep totally anonymous, to podcast at womenshealthmelbourne.com.au. Now, Raylia, I just mentioned that you're a CREI fertility specialist. That's right. What is CREI? (laughs) So CREI is the highest Australian and New Zealand qualification for a fertility specialist and it stands for Certification in Reproductive Endocrinology and Infertility. So that's a subspecialty separate from obstetrics and gynaecology which is my specialty. So when you have a look at the letters <laughs> that I have on my business card. I was going to say, there's a lot of letters after your name. <laughs> there are, there's a few. I've, I've got a few other things as well. So um, I was quoted in an article in, um, was it, I think Marie Claire last year. Because yes. they asked me to write an article on hormones and um, and give some quotes for the, for the journalist about female hormones. And... They quote your qualification sometimes when you do that and they quoted my master's in reproductive medicine and I had a little chuckle because I did my master's of reproductive medicine before I even started training in (laughs) gynaecology. I did it when I was a a, a student, well not a student, I was a a resident doctor, a junior doctor, so I'd done my first year as a doctor and um, my first year working in hospitals after that. So I started my master's in in reproductive medicine at that time. So many people do a master's in reproductive medicine. It's a a degree through a university. I did mine through University of Sydney under the late great Rob Jansen. And um, it was a fantastic basis to launch into gynaecology and obstetrics and also to have a bit of a, a first introduction to reproductive medicine and I found it fascinating and went on to subspecialise in that many years later but um, lots of people do a master's and and I know some really great naturopaths who've done the master's in reproductive medicine and uh, different people like embryologists who've gone on to do it. A friend of mine who did the master's with me went on to do a PhD in endometriosis and become a scientist and then went back to uni to study medicine to be a doctor and now she's on her way to being a pathologist. So lots of people do that master's and it's useful for lots of different reasons. 
But CREI is something very different. CREI is a subspecialty, so it's basically like a dual qualification and people who have the CREI are kind of specialists in two things, in gynaecology and obstetrics and then also in reproductive endocrinology and infertility. And when you become a specialist in obstetrics and gynaecology, the pathway to get there is to study medicine and a lot of the time these days it's postgraduate, but I did it undergraduate. I went into medical school when I was 18. Uh, And um, then once you become a doctor, you do some training that's pretty general for a couple of years. So I did my internship at the Alfred in Melbourne, which didn't even have a department of gynaecology, uh, which I loved. But then I followed my heart to Sydney. I had my then boyfriend in Sydney, (laughs) who you know now probably as my husband. Now husband who you've brought Um, back to Melbourne. That's right. And, um, but he was in Sydney and I was kind of at that point where I was thinking it's going to be something or nothing and I've got to either go for it or let it go. So I moved up to Sydney and I had my second job, which was working at Royal North Shore as a junior doctor. And that was the first time I got to do a clinical rotation in obstetrics and gynaecology. And I met lots of people who I still know today and still um, have professional relationships and friends with today um, in that year. And um, then I did what was known as a streamed residency, which is a first year fully committed to obstetrics and gynaecology. And to do that, I actually moved to RPA, which was a a hospital where I did most of my general obstetrics and gynaecology training in Sydney. And that was because I had enrolled in the Masters of Reproductive Medicine because I was really interested and already thinking at that time that I wanted to go into this area. So I thought I'll do a Masters as a taste and see if I like it. At that time, I'd never even seen an IVF procedure, let alone done one. So I had no clinical training in the area. It was purely theoretical. Uh, But I did a master's at Sydney Uni, which is, for those of you who are in Sydney, physically located literally next to RPA. And there used to be like a hole in the back fence where I could finish uh, my job on a Tuesday and on a Thursday evening and go to my class from 6 till 8.30 at the uni. And that was amazing. And I loved it. And, um, and that really sowed the seed for me going into reproductive medicine. But in those days, my day job was delivering babies, mainly doing lots of obstetrics at RPA, delivering thousands of babies. At that time, it was the, may still be, but at that time it was the busiest labour ward in Sydney. And there were about 5,000 births a year out of RPA. So I uh, did a lot of training there, loved it. I went to Darwin, I did some rural training in Darwin and then came back, did some peripheral training in in a place called Canterbury Hospital, which I've got some really lovely memories of um, under the lovely Louis Izzo, who was an amazing mentor. And um, so I came out of that having completed my my, um, main core training in obstetrics and gynaecology. And um, at the same time, actually born out of the Masters of Reproductive Medicine, I decided to do a research project which ballooned out of all proportion over the next few years. So I got really interested in genetic screening and and screening for preconception conditions and so I started looking at conditions that had been screened for in various communities and I looked at Tay-Sachs disease which is a very horrible condition. It's a lethal condition where babies are born normal and subsequently undergo neurological uh, deterioration and, and eventually die before their 
you know, four or five years of age. So it's a horrible condition and it's recessive and it runs in Ashkenazi Jewish populations. And so eventually a screening program uh, was born and, and I analysed the data from that screening program as my research project. And, um, and then I found some really interesting things and some really uh, kind of fascinating kind of observations and... At that time, it was the era of the Human Genome Project, so genetics was just undertaking an amazing... Leap forward. ...huge leap forward, and the technology for gene sequencing was being developed and clinically used, and it was just an amazing time to get really interested in genetics. So I kind of, like, deviated a little bit laterally into genetics for a while, and I ended up escalating my research project to a master's uh, thesis, and then I escalated the master's thesis to a PhD. So that was a little bit of a lateral deviation into clinical genetics for a while, and I finished my PhD. And um, All while becoming a doctor. Yeah, that, that as well, and having a couple of babies. So th- this was like a little bit of a, a sidestep in the vector of getting to be a fertility specialist. But around that time, I then decided I wanted to do the CREI, And what the CREI is, is it's a three-year training program and to be eligible for it, you have to be an obstetrician gynaecologist in training. So it's like 15 years before you can even go for the CREI. Yeah, so the requisite is you have to have nearly finished training as uh, an obstetrician gynaecologist. You can do a year of overlap. So one of your six years of obstetrics and gynaecology training can count towards your CREI if you get into the training program in an eligible time frame. And the CREI training has three years, two of which are clinical, and you're pretty much dedicating yourself to the study of all the causes of male and female infertility and also other reproductive endocrine conditions like menopause and polycystic ovarian syndrome and, and, and you know, all, all of the different hormonal aspects of care of women and men across their reproductive lifetime and also gaining expertise in lots of procedures that are not routinely taught at all in general gynaecology. Like, for example, you're not taught how to do IVF in general gynaecology. You're not taught how to do complex IVF. You're not taught how to do really advanced laparoscopy for endometriosis in general gynaecology. You're not taught how to operate on a testis in general gynaecology to retrieve sperm. And um, you've really got no exposure to lab. And none of the theory behind IVF practice and how to run a lab and how to get the best embryology and how to run IVF cycles in different populations to get different you know, outcomes, all of the intricacies of the legals, of you know the structure behind donor conception and all of the Australian requirements. None of that is taught in general gynaecology and all of it is taught in CREI. So it's a really formalised program. You have to apply to the College of ONG and be accepted onto it and they accept generally somewhere between one and three people a year on average. I think I read fewer than 80 people have the qualification. Yeah, so it's, it's not an easy one to get. Firstly, you have to get into the program and it's very competitive and then you have to do all of the requirements clinically and you have to do it across two different IVF units so you can't do it all in the one place and often that means not doing it all in the one city and remember that this is a group of people who have already finished their training as a specialist so they could be practicing in their specialty as an alternative to doing this further training and they also could be uh, living their life because it's, it's a big um, commitment to undertake all of the training and 
often people are at the stage where they're having children and, and having families and moving around is not that easy. So, uh, in, and not to mention the exam process, which is very, very difficult. So the CREI purposefully, you know, is, is very regimented. There's a curriculum, you have to cover it all. The idea of, of becoming a CREI is to practice at the very highest level. So they're not interested in making it you know, easy to pass the exam and it is very taxing. And, and I remember when my kids were, were little, when I was studying for this exam, you know, having a supportive partner is so critical because I used to sit there, come home from working a full, a full week and then study and study and study and study. And you have to read all of the journals and be up to date with all of the most um, up-to-date technological changes in the field because you can be examined on that. And uh, to still hold a CREI after you've qualified for it and got your exam, you have to demonstrate that you have kept up your knowledge at that level. So it's hard to get it and it's hard to maintain it. And I would say that probably 90% of people who practice in fertility medicine haven't got a CREI. So why is it important to, when you're looking to have fertility treatment or freeze your eggs or use donor sperm, why is it important to see a CREI, qualified specialist? Well, look, I'll I'll answer the question as to why I wanted it because, you know, I could have probably watched a few egg collections as a gynaecologist and, you know, kind of winged it a bit, which is what a lot of people do um, across the country. They have on-the-job Training, training and yeah, you don't have to in, have in all sorts of it happens fields. in lots of fields and you don't have to have uh, you know kind of all of the academic acumen to physically do that procedure hmm. you know just like for example you know you don't have to be a doctor to deliver a baby midwives do a wonderful job of, of doing normal deliveries um in terms of you know gp obstetricians in the country do normal deliveries you don't have to be an obstetrician to deliver a baby but the the point of CREI is that you're held at a standard and, and, and I've already you know kind of said this in other episodes but I, I'm a pretty competitive person <laughs> it's my nature and and I'm also very I'm a bit hard on myself I, I want to do the best job that I can possibly do for every patient and I wasn't satisfied that there was a qualification in my field that I wanted to excel in that I hadn't got I wanted to be able to offer the very top level care to my patients and that's I think part of the group of people who have attained the CREI that it is a very to some degree elitist group because the exam is very hard there are two elements to it you have to do a written exam and, a, and an oral exam and in the oral exam you're face to face with the leading peeps in in reproductive endocrinology in this country. Is it scary? Is it scary? Yeah. <laughs> uh, look, I, I wasn't scared, actually. You know, by the time I got there, um, I was excited. I was excited. I was prepared. Um, yes, there's anxiety. Yes, there's a level of, of butterflies. But I was ready to prove myself. I kind of felt, you know, that it was, you know, kind of time to shine. So I just... Um, I, I, to some degree, like I've probably suppressed some of the bad memories, <laughs> but um, no, I, I, I thought it was um, overall a positive experience. And do you know what? I studied so hard for those exams. I think if you don't have that onus of that exam, you just don't study those things as hard. You just don't. It's but just the way that medicine is taught. Yes, there's on-the-job training. And yes, it's very good for the practical realities of doing certain things during your day. But if you don't have to prove yourself 
in the way you do with the CREI. I just don't think you attain the knowledge and you certainly don't retain the knowledge. And, you know, you I have to go to the international conferences and read the journals and say abreast of what's fact, what's fiction, what's what you, what we used to think was was fact and now we think is fiction in fertility because that changes all the time all the time it's such a radically shifting field and uh, i think um you know i have to go to those things to maintain my CREI every 3 years i have to do documentation to prove that i've you know done kind of the the requisite level of activities leadership activities are also um counted so for example I can put down for points towards my CREI things like the fact that I teach at a university and things like the fact that I present my research internationally and that I collaborate with other researchers and uh, that I, you know, kind of take part on committees like, for example, the Clinical Advisory Committee for the Your Fertility Forum. So all of these things are, you know, kind of that I do can, you know, kind of like tick the boxes for the CREI maintenance of knowledge as well as the... Let's give um, the best care to your patients. That's right. And and it's kind of... And you, you just do hold each other accountable and it is um, it is kind of... Uh, it, is, it is an honour to be a CREI. It's considered mm. an honour and I, I consider it an honour. Yeah. I think what I found most interesting just here is that... I know when I think of OBGYN, I think of the women, but I know from our conversations through the podcast that fertility is very much about the couple and that you don't even, and that you touch on male fertility only in the CREI. Yeah, well, that's right. You don't get taught about male fertility as an obstetrician gynecologist. Not to say that people can't educate themselves, but uh, certainly you don't, you don't have that. And andrology or the study of male fertility and male endocrine function is part of the CREI program so and it's not part of of the France COG so there are andrologists around who can enter that pathway in other ways so if you're not a obstetrician who then did reproductive endocrinology there are some endocrinologists so physicians that have gone into endocrinology hormone studies that then decide to go into andrology but they often don't do the surgical side of it so mm-hmm. they they wouldn't do things like in general sperm retrieval mm-hmm. for IVF so it's the kind of andrology we do in the CREI is, is really specific to fertility. And, you know, I would refer on a man who's completed his family but, say, for example, who needed testosterone replacement for the rest of his life because he'd had um, testicular failure. So I'd help him in terms of maybe retrieving sperm and, and trying to use testicular sperm through IVF uh, with the help of sometimes a clinical urologist, a surgical um, urologists, because sometimes for microtesi they're the the expert at that, uh, which is when the testis is cut completely in half and searched through using a, a microscope for three or four hours looking for tiny sperm and then doing testicular reconstructive surgery. So I don't do that, but I do do uh, needle sperm retrieval myself. I do open testicular biopsy myself, and I was trained to do that during my CREI training. You mentioned Franskog? Yeah, so Franz Koch's just the, well, just, it's also pretty special. So uh-huh. Franz Koch is a fellowship of the Royal Australian New Zealand College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, and that's a requisite to doing uh, CREI. But in terms of um, doing fertility medicine, uh, many people are surprised that the term fertility specialist is actually not a real term. It's used a lot. It's yes. used a lot in the common mantra, but it's actually not a protected term. We, we say protected terms 
are terms used by our colleges, like, for example... Or like champagne is a protected term. Yeah, like champagne, exactly, is a protected term. So, you know, fertility specialist is is kind of just a term that anyone can use and you see it used by people who aren't doctors necessarily. And technically there's nothing wrong with that because it actually doesn't refer to a degree. Yeah. Whereas CREI is a degree in reproductive endocrinology and infertility and Franzcog is a degree in obstetrics and, obstetrics and gynaecology. So um, fertility specialist is a bit of a, a kind of wishy-washy term, but we all use it because that's what the kind of... Um, we understand. That's right. That's what people understand. They understand they have a problem with fertility. They're going to go to a fertility specialist. But technically the, the correct term for a subspecialist in reproductive endocrinology and infertility is CREI. And if a doctor working in the fertility space doesn't have a CREI, then they may have expertise in the area, but they've acquired it in a non, I guess, regimented way and and they haven't gone through official channels. Raylia, we've talked about with CREI how much study you've done and what areas it covers. When most people think of fertility, they think of IVF. What other options are there that you, you've, you've practised? So, yeah, so look, I guess one of the main advantages of seeing a CREI subspecialist is that it's not just IVF. So we cover the whole spectrum of fertility treatment. So a lot of my practice, for example, is treating things like polycystic ovarian syndrome or women who don't ovulate for other reasons and helping them to ovulate regularly and so they can have sex with their partner and get pregnant naturally. And I also do things like gentle superovulation where you can give someone a little bit of a more significant chance of getting pregnant every month naturally if they've got unexplained infertility. I do IUI treatment, which is when... We give uh, intrauterine insemination of optimised sperm and we can combine that with those other techniques of ovulation, induction or cycle augmentation. I work a lot on diet, lifestyle and endocrine or hormonal balance. Uh, And I do work in my practice in an integrated way with other practitioners. So, for example, we have a naturopath who's joined our practice. We have a dietitian, a clinical dietitian in our practice, Wendy Fideli, who's been on the another podcast, episode. Yeah. She's been on another podcast. Um, and, um, you know, I like to see my patients as whole people and I like to not only treat a particular problem but also just optimise their general health at the same time, which does translate to better outcomes for fertility. So... One advantage of seeing a CREI is you may not be lined to IVF. You know, I do a lot of reproductive surgeries. I do treat a lot of endometriosis. A lot of endometriosis goes undiagnosed and people just think infertility is unexplained when in fact it's endometriosis. So there's there's lots of little things we can do, things like flushing the fallopian tubes, things like optimising hormones, things like getting timing perfect, things like regulating a cycle which might be a little bit out for example as women get a bit older while we go through this process of perimenopause which we recognize in the five years before our periods completely stop what also can be underrecognized is even in our late 30s and early 40s our cycles can change and they can have they more, shorten they shorten and they have more subtle differences which is related to our egg count declining Um, I do a lot of preventative medicine as well. I'm very passionate about egg freezing. I think it's an amazing technology. And I also think that egg freezing is so 
important to counsel in a very nuanced way so that people really understand the stats and really understand that if you want to get a reasonable outcome from egg freezing, you have to commit to a certain amount of treatment and a certain number of eggs frozen. So that that's a big part of my practice. And, and one of the things that I'm proud of being a CREI is to be able to communicate the facts to patients in an accurate way and then allow them to be partners in the decision-making process rather than just applying kind of a, you know, kind of more of a one kind of trick pony IVF well, mentality. It's so complex. It's really complex and, and I really enjoy the challenge of, you know, trying to meet a patient's expectations but also just do the best job I can do and get them where they're going with the treatment that they need as opposed to just IVF. Thank you so much, Raylia. My pleasure. And thank you for listening to Knocked Up. For more information about CREI, fertility and women's health, please visit womenshealthmelbourne.com.au and you can check out past episodes. We've covered the best time to have sex to get pregnant. We've talked about egg freezing. We've talked about male fertility um, and so much more. By subscribing to our podcast and giving us a five-star review, it really helps others to find us. Our mission is to empower women seeking real, honest and accurate fertility advice and we really appreciate your help. You can follow us on social media at Women's Health Melbourne and at Dr. Aaliyah We'll be back with another episode soon. Bye.